1: Today on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. We are not talking to a JAG or a former JAG. We are talking to Mark Fava, who was a line officer in the Navy, fell under the influence of some JAGs, or at least one JAG in particular, and has gone on to a civilian attorney career, doing a lot of different things. So Mark, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, Tom. First, let me say thank you for having me and for inviting me. Even though I'm a little bit out of the box, I've listened to your podcast and think it's just great. Also, thank you for your service and for those listening. It's great to be here. If you haven't looked up Mark's
1: biography yet on LinkedIn, he spent 30 years in the Navy, some active duty time, but also as a reservist, and he was a P3 guy up in Maine. So, Mark, tell us your connection with the Navy JAG Corps.
0: Yeah, it's a great story. You know, I finished Chapel Hill ROTC back in the Michael Jordan days, didn't really know what I was going to do Was a poli-sci graduate. And was forced to take physics and a couple other things, and decided I didn't want to work too hard and go in the SWO community because I saw how hard they worked, right? Did a week with marines and got yelled at quite a lot, and then uh, looked real closely at aviation and decided to head for the p three community. I found it you know intriguing it was the height of the Cold War. So, as we all show up at our first squadron, you know, I showed up and Within a couple of months, actually maybe mid-tour, I was looked at and assigned to be the legal officer. And it was great for me because, you know, four or five weeks up in Newport in the springtime was just a great place to be. It also ended up that back in those days, in the P3 crew, they'd only pick 50% of the people to go to Seer school. So, you know, while I went to legal officer school, a couple of my colleagues on my crew ended up going to Seer school, which I thought was a pretty good trade off. I didn't know it at the time, and I was happy to go to Seer school. So came back to the squadron, and as you are with the legal officer, got stuck with quite a few masts and ADCEPs and even a couple of summary court-martials. And, you know, all of those are reviewed by an SJA. And the SJA at that time was up in Brunswick, Maine, and was a lieutenant commander at the time named uh, Hank Maliningo or Mungo that we all know very well. Mongo not only taught me and helped me mentor me as a legal officer, but when that tour was coming to an end, said, hey, Fava, you got to come up and be the Admiral's aide. And I said, I don't think I want to come to Maine, Mongo. He said, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I did. And even go further, he was the one that really helped me consider going to law school. And ultimately, I am sure he was one of my law school recommendations. So you got out of the active duty force and you went into the reserve component at that time? That's correct. The day I got out and knew I was going to law school, you know, I was on the admiral staff and going in and telling the admiral that I was leaving active duty. I knew one of two things was going to happen. Either he was going to be okay with it or he was going to fire me on the spot. And I worked for a great boss and he said, okay, what can I do to help you? And I said, look, I really want to stay in this career. And I did. So I was able to go down to Jacksonville, stay in the reserves. And mind you, even as a 04 back in the reserve squadron, I got assigned once again to be the legal officer. But as I've mentioned to you, it was absolutely the best thing I ever did. wasn't easy because juggling a reserve career, a family, and trying to be a lawyer and go through law school was a challenge. But it was absolutely the best thing I ever did to stay in the reserves.
1: So you went to University of South Carolina for law school. And after you graduated, it looks like you've done a variety
0: of things. You first went into private practice, I actually got a clerkship. I knew I wanted to be back in South Carolina. I think that's something important when, you know, your listeners are trying to figure out what do you want to do and where do you want to be? I knew I wanted to be in South Carolina. My dad was Navy and like many Navy folks, we had ended up here on one of his tours. And I applied for a number of federal clerkships. And I actually got picked by a federal judge who's still on the bench and was also a Navy veteran. So he had been, a, believe it or not, a enlisted gentleman on a submarine. It's one of our best federal judges in the state of South Carolina. So I did that for two years and then went on to a smaller statewide insurance defense law firm, mostly doing car accidents and, you know, cutting my teeth on those. And then train wrecks, but I knew I really wanted to do aviation law. So I was still playing in the reserves in the backseat, trying to break into it. And I just couldn't until I got a call from a high school buddy of mine who was Naval Academy graduate, had got a cross commission into the Air Force, had gone to law school because I had talked him into it and was at Delta Airlines. And he said, hey, Mark, you got to come work for Delta.
1: And so you end up at Delta, not your first touch with aviation, but your first time doing aviation legal work. Was your interest basically litigation first and you went to that firm to build your litigation and hopefully to get in aviation or did it just work out? Was it your network that got you really interested in aviation? I mean, what's sort of been your interest in the legal field since you got uh, your bar license?
0: No, that's a great question. And so much of it has been the networking, which I know you talk about here. Yeah, look, the guy that called me from Delta was a high school classmate of mine that actually ended up going in the Navy. I told him, my first response was, absolutely not. I have no desire to live in Atlanta. I'm in Charleston where I want to be. And he said, well, come interview with us. And I did. And I went back and told my wife, I said, look, we got to go. We got to go to Atlanta. This is a job. I I have to have to break into the field. And got there 41 days before 9-11 as the chief operations attorney. I was handling outside passenger litigation, but then I also got into all of the FAA regulatory aspect of the air carrier itself which then post 9-11 turned into the TSA stuff. And look, while I was there, I joined a couple of groups, including ABA groups, and was just really, again, continuing to meet with my counterparts and all the other air carriers. So, you know, I was meeting with the folks at Atlanta and I'm sorry, at United, and also dealing with the aviation insurers in New York. And doing that for two or three years really provided me the network of people to then come back to Charleston with a law firm and, and start aviation law practice. So you were one of the founding members of that firm. We had an aviation, a very small aviation law practice at the firm I came back to. It was actually being handled by a former Air Force Vietnam war pilot, and he was winding down his practice. You know, it wasn't lucrative. It wasn't six, seven figures. And when I left Delta, you know, this goes to, you know, not burning any bridges. I called the law firm back and I said, look, you know, remember me, I'd love to come back. And they said, sure, we'd love to have you, but we got nothing for you to do. You're going to have to build the practice. And I said, Okay. okay, I you know, I'll take that risk. I, I think I can do that. And within five or six years, I was able to do that, to market it and build it up to a group we called the Southeastern Aviation Law Practice and was ending up five or six states defending, you know, most of the major air carriers and a lot of general aviation accident cases.
1: And you did that for almost six years before you went on to Boeing. And again, when you went to Boeing, you were in a, looks like a litigation, you were chief counsel. You've been at Boeing now for over 12 years. Am I right?
0: Yes, sir. And again, this is sort of another one of those things of being in the right place at the right time. But I was working very hard to self-brand as an aviation lawyer, right? So when you type in aviation lawyer, South Carolina, I wanted my name to pop up. That's very purposeful. You have to speak, write, meet people and get yourself out there. And a lot of it's on your own time and own dime. I remember years at the law firm where I barely made my billable hour requirement, my collection goal, because I was spending so much time marketing. It ended up being incredibly well for me because when I saw Boeing coming into South Carolina, here's a multi-billion dollar company, the world's largest aerospace manufacturer coming into Charleston to build a multi-million dollar plant. And I, I said, okay, I know they're going to need an attorney. How do I get that job? And at that time, I was on an American Bar Association air and space committee committee with a Boeing vice president. Started in a a cocktail conversation in Washington, D.C.
1: And again, going to Boeing, you had some contact with some, again, some former Navy Jags. And who were they?
0: Yeah, it was so interesting because this is another tip I tell people all the time. You know, not only do you have to be smart about your resume preparation, you know, targeting it for the job, looking at the people who you might be able to talk to. But at that time, one of the vice presidents I talked to in D.C., I had known from being on this ABA committee, but I started looking at who the other VPs were at the company at the time. And there were two former JAG flag officers, Mike Lore and Steve Horton, Ironically, Laura was the uh, corporate secretary of the company. I said, wow, this is incredible. I mean, he'll at least give me an audience. Even better than that, Steve was the head of all of Boeing facilities, and one of his collateral duties was overseeing the hiring process. He was the last person I talked to after I got the offer to make the decision to come to Boeing.
1: Now, Mark, you went to Boeing in a lawyer job. You did chief counsel at Boeing, South Carolina for almost 10 years. Then you moved over to the Chief Counsel of Boeing Engineering Regulatory and South Carolina Operations. But now you're an ombudsman. But if you could explain to the audience what your job is now.
0: Sure. And it's another one, just being in the right place with the right time. And you know, I tell people all the time, it's hard work, a little bit of luck, and a little bit of uh, divine intervention. The company decided about seven or eight months ago to have an person position, specifically dealing with, we've got about, you know, over a 1,000, maybe 1,200 individuals who have authority to sign for the FAA. So they can sign off a plane, sign off a certificate for the FAA, which has been, you know, somewhat of a, an issue of discussion of late. They were looking for an individual that could represent those people, or at least converse with those people as the first person. And boy, the legal skills lined up significantly with that. I'd say probably half the ombuds that I've met have either a legal or an HR or a PhD background in some type of uh, personnel management or skills. So, you know, they called me and said, would you be interested in doing it with it? It just seemed like an incredible opportunity to use the legal skills, to use the opportunity to help out and guide people. To forward the safety aspect of the company with just another avenue for the company. So I jumped at the opportunity and I've uh, been in the business now about six months.
1: Is it a little less stressful than being uh, the chief counsel and having all those issues weighing on you? And it seems like you're enjoying this job.
0: I am because, you know, it's much like when I first got to Charleston, I was hired as the first lawyer in Charleston. We knew we wanted to build a big factory. We didn't really know how to do it. We knew, you know, what we wanted to do and where we wanted to end up. So every day it was a challenge. And the ombuds role is the same. Believe it or not, there is an international ombuds association. I've joined that. I've taken the training. The other ombuds in that group have been incredibly welcoming. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. I've actually got, now a mentor assigned to me that will soon be the Duke University ombuds person. What I've learned is there's a large group of uh, ombudspersons or men out there, and uh, the role is incredibly rewarding, and and I think companies are are starting to realize that.
1: Let's talk about JAGs. You didn't serve as a JAG, but you've been listening to this podcast. You know the type of work we do, and you know we've been doing this for 30 years, Where it's not necessarily the, say, subject matters that lawyers on the outside of the military focus on. I really am interested in on your thoughts of former and especially the AARP group looking for work after the Navy or after the Army, the Air Force, and trying to leverage that legal experience into Boeing or some other kind of company.
0: Sure. No, listen, the skills of the JAG force are hard to beat at any law firm or any corporation. It is a highly transferable job to a corporation or to a law firm or to a federal job. So the challenge, like you said, is getting non-military folks to understand it, right? So as I mentioned previously, I think it's incredibly beneficial to, at some point, figure out the topical area you want to be the expert in, join that group, and show up. And, you know, you can show up in uniform, or you can show up in a nice suit, just to start meeting those folks, targeting the geographic area you want to be, because I think so much is dependent upon Finding somebody that understands the excellence of the program, the leadership, the organizational skills, and all the fires that you put out on a daily basis and where you've been, and all that skill set is incredibly transferable to any major corporation. You know, you can look at Amazon and, and even our company that they're looking specifically to hire veterans. And there's a reason for that because we understand the honor, the commitment, the work ethic. So I think establishing those relationships. Heck, go ahead and write, publish, do something, get out there so that people understand. You know, they don't bucket you just as a JAG. Oh, you want to do military law? No, I'm an expert in this, that, and the other. Well, how come you don't join the military law section? Because I can pretty much do a breadth of of things, right? Especially at the experience level of, of 30 years or so. And we were talking before
1: we hit the record button here, the compliance industry. You saw that as one area that a lot of the stuff we do might be a great fit.
0: Absolutely. Compliance and ethics is incredibly important these days to every major corporation, not only with respect to regulatory compliance and ethics, but the branding of the company, the issues that the, the company sees. You know, you're not typically not going to find a compliance or ethics law firm within four or five years coming out of law school or at a law firm. So the best places for those are in the Department of Justice, the JAG areas where people with those specialties have been and are, you know, the leading edge of that subject matter. You know, I've tooled around
1: on company websites before the career portals, or career advertisements. And once in a while, you'll see lawyer jobs advertised. And we all know that like 75 to 85% of jobs are usually through the networking. Any recommendations on how we go about doing that? For a company such as the size or the expanse of, like a Boeing or a Delta.
0: Yeah we talked this, about this earlier, one of your previous guests said this, but target your application to the qualifications of the job summary, what they're looking for. So if they say looking for a litigator you know, with X number of years experience in ethics and compliance, you should have those same words somewhere in your resume, right? Because unfortunately, a job can have three to 5,000 applicants. And as your previous guest mentioned, a lot of that first screen is done by AI. So you got to get past that. Now we do that with honesty and integrity, but Anybody with five to 30 years in the JAG Corps can put together a multi-page resume. What you want to do is focus that resume exactly on the job qualifications that someone is seeking. And then I think it's very important to try and target somebody within the company that's a veteran. I've been very lucky at that. And I think most people will accept the blind email from another veteran. Hey, I'd really love to talk to you about this job. Not necessarily want you to tell me I got the job, but just tell me a little bit more about the job. And what do you think my chances are? And then be honest with yourself. I mean, so many people will call me up and say, hey, I really want this job. And, you know, I'll look at their resume and I'll look at the job description and there's just no way. And I'm realistic in that regard that I'm like, man, that looks like a great job, but I just don't meet the exact specifications. But I think that's the first loop. And if you can find somebody that you can connect with uh, personally, better yet, if you're already in a group that you can connect with them, which is what happened to me, it's even better because all you want that person to do is maybe scratch around a little bit and see if you're qualified. And then if so, shoot the hiring manager an email just saying, hey, I just talked to so and so they're very interested in this job and I think they're qualified. That can move the bar.
1: I think one of the things that military people struggle with is the resume in a couple of ways. First, the idea that this is like the final piece, this is the thing that will get you the job. And we all know all this is, is to get you the invite to talk to somebody, to show that you have the qualifications or of the interest to get you a foot in the door, to sit down and talk to somebody in some sort of interview. I think the other place that military lawyers struggle with, and I don't know if you can speak to military lawyers or military personnel, is the best way to capture that on a resume in this sense. We do a lot of SJA jobs. We do a a lot of legal jobs, but usually they might be spread out over a 20 or 30 year career. And you don't want to go on more than two pages about those jobs. Any thoughts on how we should be capturing these experiences in a resume?
0: Yeah. Again, I think you target what part of your many years of experience meets that job request or that job requisition, right? So, you know, if you did this for five or 10 years, somewhere in your career, pull that out and mention that. And I know there's a lot of discussion about, you know, whether or not you put SJA on there or whether you use legal jargon or civilian jargon. Look, I think you can thread the needle and and do both. I will say that, you know, I've seen that in some companies where they just, you might not be hiring veterans, like, what's going on here? because they couldn't understand the resumes. You know, I'll look at it and say, this person has 10 times more experience than this person, you know, who might be a five Beta cap out of somewhere else that done nothing in his or her career that is as substantial as what a JAG has done. So trying to figure out how to bring that out in the resume, I think is important and, and it can be done. And then that's where the key to finding a military person or a veteran can help you, because someone like me can read SJA or read deployed in Iran or Iraq or underway in this area or IA during this time. And we know exactly what that means.
1: You raise another good point and something I struggle with. I've done a couple of tailored resumes and you know I use skillsinker.com, which allows you to load the PD and load your draft and give you a confidence score of hitting those qualifications. But what about an executive resume or a networking resume in a sense that, you know, you say, hey, Tom, let me see your resume and I, I can talk to some people. Should we just take a more general approach and just kind of outlining those? Or Do you have any thoughts on those specifically on how we should be preparing those for the networking purposes?
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things I've figured out, just having been in two corporations, especially at the current one for quite some time, is your target audience has about a minute to read what you're putting in front of them. And that's true with all communications I draft. If there is somebody at that level that you're trying to connect with, you know, you're right. I think it's two or three sentences or, four, you know, four or five sentences at the most. Really would appreciate the opportunity to speak with you or just connect with you, something that will grab somebody's attention because people, senior executives at that level, just don't have the time. I call it the two scroll rule. If I get an email that, you know, or any of us do, that we've got to just scroll and scroll and scroll it's going to go to the parking lot, right? Because I don't have time. I want to knock out as much as I can, as quickly as I can. And that's where I I just love. And it's one of the, the acronyms I've tried to teach my civilian colleagues is just bluff. Look, you got to tell me right up front what you want, what's the issue, and what can I do for you? With those three things, I can act and I can maneuver. And I found it to be very successful also with that level of an executive resume, if that's what you're trying to do. Because you want to capture somebody's attention with the minimal amount of their time so that they can say, okay, got it, right? Or, okay, sounds good. Talk to Susan or Jack and they'll schedule us. What else do you have opinions on that I haven't hit on yet? We've covered so much of it. I I will say, you know, as you can tell, and you are the same, anybody that's in the uniform, wearing the uniform now, we're just passionate about what we're doing, especially being lawyers. And I just think now is such a significant time to be an attorney, to, uh, to be standing up for what's right and for the rule of law. So I really appreciate what the men and women in uniform have done. And I was proud to do the same, even though I I wasn't a JAG. But my thoughts are always, have a plan, a two to three year plan. You know, when I checked into my first squadron, the skipper said, what's your next job? I was like, look, I just want to get qualified as a P3 NFO. And that day, I, I was like, okay, I'm always thinking, what am I doing two to three years from now? Be persistent. If you don't get what you want, just keep knocking on the door. And then the final thing is just a little bit of patience helps out.
1: A couple of questions out of that follow-up. First, the patient's perspective. We go through these transition courses. We talk to people and they say, oh, don't apply until you're about two or three months out. That's not necessarily the case for places where maybe they have a more deliberate hiring process. And I don't know what your experience was with Delta or Boeing, for example. The companies that I've dealt with has gone four or five months from advertisement to offer being extended. And the second was we were talking before we went on the air about taking the long view towards your transition and not necessarily looking one year out or six months out and how important it is to develop that long view. You were talking about that. Those are a couple of things I think that are worth mentioning.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm going to agree with you on the timing aspect. If you're struggling with a decision at a year out, you need to be doing the investigation, right? Doing the due diligence, poking around, come within your headset of, okay, geographically, here's what I'm willing to do. And here's where I'd like to be subject matter and geography, and then start targeting those, reading those, joining groups in those areas, figuring out who the leaders are in those areas. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think from my initial contact at Boeing, at that American Bar Association cocktail party in Washington, D.C., where I was told we don't need a lawyer in Charleston anytime soon, to the time I was hired was six months. It was a very challenging multiple interview process. I think that the the last interview I had with the general counsel, he looked at me and said, I don't think you're the guy for the job. And I said, OK. I said, you know. <laughs> He said, we have a bunch of great lawyers within the company and they want to come to Charleston. And he said, I know you've been in the Navy. I know you've been at Delta. He goes, but what makes you better than any of our current lawyers? And I said, well, judge, I said, he was former judge. I just said, listen, I said, there's nobody else that knows Charleston better than I do. I can go into any room in any area of the state. and I can tell you who's in the room and how we're going to get something accomplished. And you got to have those relationships here. And I studied that and I knew that was important to him. We left the interview and about two or three weeks later, he called me and said, what do we got to do to close the deal? I mean, that was it. He, but that was six months. So Mark, I have not talked too much with my
1: guests about interviewing. We go through these things and they talk about, you got to research the company. It's to be a conversation. You are a shiny toy because they want to get the idea of, do I want to work with this person? But there's always a a little bit of anxiety about the questions, you know, what is your greatest accomplishment? What is your greatest weakness? And I understand there's strategies to what you talk about and why they're asking those questions. But in your experience with the interview process, are we getting too anxious about these things? I mean, obviously prepare, but any advice on interviewing?
0: Yeah. You mentioned this earlier, Tom, if you've made it past the initial screen, and you're at an interview, somebody has already said, this person's qualified for the job, right? And they know your background. I study the people. I, I know exactly what they've done. So, you know, I'm, and I think most people interviewing are really looking at that point just to get to know the person. I think it's very important. It's difficult for me to, to be very succinct in your answers, be conversational. And it's no different than trying to meet a friend at a social gathering or something, trying to convince that person that not only are you a qualified lawyer that has made it this far, but also that you'd be a good person to work with, good for the working environment. Again, because if you're at that point, you're maybe one of five uh, at most that you're going to be interviewed and uh, you know, you're know, you qualified for the job. There's no doubt about it because you wouldn't be an interviewed. Now it's just the time to be cordial, tell something personally about yourself if the opportunity presents itself. But you don't need to reiterate, and I've been guilty of this before, everything you've done before, I was a CEO in the reserves of a squadron. They know that, right? Or if they don't know that, they don't care because they've already invited you in in the door. So I think most of them at that point are just casual conversations to figure out if this individual is someone I would like to, to be down in the office or in the office right next door to me.
1: And while we're down there, let's say we get to that part. What about the negotiation part? You hear the don't ever talk money first. Don't be the one that puts the initial offer on there. I mean, again, you should have been able to do some research. You should have been able to connect with some people to have a ballpark idea of what you're looking at scale. But as JAGs, military members, we know what our pay is. We know what our allowances is. We've never had to be in a position to negotiate for pay, for benefits, for all the other stuff. Any takeaways or advice that you have for us on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, even coming from a law firm with me, it's always a challenge because most companies will, even now, before they give you an offer, which I find bizarre, they take the steam right out of the system because they, they have you write down what your current salary is. So the HR and payroll people can benchmark you and that's all fine and dandy, but I think you're right. Sort of figure out where you think, if you can, where your colleagues would be you know, at that position. I think it's perfectly fine, and there's some hesitancy or reluctance to do this, to negotiate once you get an offer. With diplomacy and respect and not something that's out of the ballpark, and it can be other benefits, right? You know, if you're talking to a company, it can be stock or stock options, or can I come in at a different level or, you know, not only the comp, but can you know come in at a different grade? And you need to know what those grades are. So you're not negotiating from a blind mindset. When I got my current position, I was able to do that. I, they wanted me to come in at one level. I was able to say, look, I'm going to be the only lawyer there in Charleston. You're doing a lot. It would be great if I can come in at this level. And I made the argument as to why very diplomatically. Look, I was prepared to accept the lower level and they came back and said, okay. So I think it's just like any mediation or anything. I think your initial offer, whoever gives that to you is gonna have some gates on either end. And I think it's important to pressure check those and, and say, look, make make the reason why you think you know something else would be beneficial to you because your greatest leverage is when you first come in, right? After that, you're going to be lockstep in the system, which is great, but you'll have your greatest leverage if the company is interested in you and they're giving you an offer at that point. So don't be bashful about countering because if the answer to the counter is no, they're just going to say, we're not going to do that. And you say, okay, I'm good with what you gave me, right? So, you know, okay, I'll take it under advisement. And you call them back the next day and say, all right, that's great. I'd love to work for you. People are not offended by that. Yeah. I have an assumption that although
1: compensation is usually confidential with companies between the employee and the company, I have a sense that a company, you know, for example, the business or the rate of people they're paying is 150 dollars to $200,000, for example, They're not going to try to chancel you down to 50,000 or come in extremely low because they have an interest in having someone who comes on board and feels valued as part of the team. Now, my assumption is that you're talking a more finite amount because if you, for example, you found out, well, I settled at 50 and the same guy is getting $150,000, then you may be looking to leave or be upset and they want everybody to be generally happy to get there. That's my assumption.
0: No, you're correct. I kidded a little bit about having to provide that up front because that's exactly what the compensation folks are doing. They're trying to benchmark you at a salary that's equivalent to your peers that are already at the company. And I've found that to be you know, very honorable and very reasonable. And then if you push back and say, hey, could you do X or could you do Y? They'll say maybe or no or yes. And if it's no, it's just because of that reason, Tom. You know, That would put you way above the people currently at, at your, your peers and it puts us in a very difficult you know position with compensation you know compression and you know how do you tell the person that's been there for 2 years that you know that mark just came in brand new and is now making 20 grand more that's the type of stuff that gets going on at the at the water cooler it is rampant at the law firm which you know got me to frustrated with the law firm but it's just how the system works so i found that to be a lot better in a corporation because they do try to benchmark you with what's fair well mark we've gone on
1: And I think I'm going to go ahead and end this unless you have any other final parting wisdom
0: for us. Well, thank you, Tom, and and sure appreciate again uh, your service and that of all the folks that that are listening. Thank you very much for having me today.
1: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.